I'm Alan Collar, Editor-in-Chief of Eureka Report, and joining me in the Money Cafe today is Stephen Main, contributor at Eureka Report, founder of Crikey, shareholder advocate, and the a councillor at the City of Manningham. G'day, Stephen. Hi, Alan. I've just stepped out of the ANZ AGM to join you for today's chat, so looking forward to it. Well, we're not in the cafe, as everyone can probably tell, because uh, and the reason for that is that um, uh, Short Straw, our cafe that we normally go to, uh, has been declared to be an exposure site. Somebody got it and went there, got the COVID and went there, and there you go. And I got a note last night saying, because I went there uh, for lunch the other day with my wife and... Um, we both have to get tested and we are in isolation. I'm guessing that means you won't be on the TV tonight. I will not be on the TV tonight because I've got to get, I've got to wait 24 hours for the results and I have to isolate until I get them. And so it's Dan Ziffer tonight, he of the hair. Excellent. Excellent. So, but you'll be able to write a cracking Saturday overview for uh, Eureka subscribers. That's right. I'll, I'll give it extra time. So Good. That's, Good. Uh, that's a plus. So um, welcome to that. Now, Stephen, um, can we just uh, deal with a bit of the gossip around Magellan before we get into serious matters? I mean, I swear, actually, I think the, the Magellan stuff is serious, to be honest, because uh, the CEO went mysteriously, and um, uh, and then the and then Hamish Douglas, the founder, uh, split with his wife, and oh, you know. So is are we? Do you think the things have settled down now? Is he back in town? Yeah, look, he's he's been on a sort of three or four month world tour, uh, supposedly a business trip, but I think there was a bit of pleasure in there as well. Time on James Packer's yacht and the like. Um, back in the country, uh, CEO departs abruptly, uh, uh, Mr. Cairns. Um, I'm not sure that calling it personal reasons for Brett Cairns is the full and frank uh, description. I'd love to know uh, the size of the payout if there's a non-disclosure agreement and what actually really happened there because it's very unusual to have a an abrupt CEO exit like that. Um, yeah, so I think that uh, you know the stocks crashed from seventy dollars to twenty nine. Obviously, the cash allocation at the peak of COVID was terrible, but Hamish was back this week with briefings for clients of financial advisors saying, you know, Warren Buffett went to cash as well. He's holding the line. It's a long game. Stick with me, even though he's uh, he's underperformed um, significantly and the share price obviously is tanked. So uh, it's a bit of a mess at Magellan at the moment. He needs the, he needs the market to tank. That's Big what time. he needs. For him to perform better, he needs the market to tank and for him to deploy his excess cash holdings. But uh Interest rates at zero, very hard to see the market tanking, even even with COVID, um, as I'm sure we'll get to when we talk about the market and the economy well, today. I, but, uh, I couldn't agree more. Let's talk about it now. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, the, the, everyone's got money in the bank. There's $200 million sitting, billion, billion dollars sitting in people's bank accounts. Uh, interest rates are staying where they are for a while. Um, you know, I, uh, the thing is that bear markets are caused by uh, earnings recessions. Uh, and that's just clearly not going to happen. You know? It's not. I mean, we did see a, a bit of a COVID cost hit for Woolies. So, you know, you, you still have to talk about COVID in relation to, to earnings. And you know, Aquinas have just come out and said, you know, another billion dollar plus loss for the half year. But, I mean, the ANZ AGM just now, you know, Shane Elliott, the CEO, was saying this is the most benign credit environment in the history of credit. And, and, and that sums it up, you know, an incredibly benign credit environment with governments the world over printing money, interest rates at zero, 
I think the bigger risk is more on the inflation side, as in the US at you know six percent. Our inflation getting as you know, almost up to four percent uh, in the second quarter this year, um, and then supply supply chain challenges with COVID. Um, that's the only downside I see, but. They'll just keep stimulating and printing money until that gets sorted. So I think Hamish Douglas's <laughs> excessive cash holding is is particularly painful, given he's not earning any any return on that cash at the moment. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think he's I think he's in strife completely. Yep. Um, so listen, you're talking about the a- uh, ANZ AGM. How many AGMs have you done this year? I think ANZ makes it uh, seventy. For the year, which is a record. My previous record was 68 in 2008, which cost me about 10 grand in travel costs. So this year's cost me nothing in travel. So I'm a big, big fan of the online AGMs and, uh, uh, yeah, averaging about 10 questions uh, per meeting. And, uh, you know, like with ANZ, I've already typed my 10 questions in and then I've come off to chat to you. So it's always good having someone else read out the questions for you. And, uh, funny how the climate activists, both at ANZ today and at Westpac yesterday, much prefer to use the telephone. So they all wait, you know, wait to be put through and then they hammer them with their climate questions. You know, there was about 15 different people on the telephone yesterday hammering Westpac. And they were trying the same thing at ANZ this morning and the chairman, Paul O'Sullivan, was diligently trying to say we're dealing with climate change questions at the end when we get to the shareholder resolution on that. So he was trying to bat away this sort of uh, coming tsunami of uh, 15 to 20 climate activists uh, hitting their tough and forensic and detailed questions, which is really quite a grilling when you listen to it. Three and a half hours of Westpac yesterday must have been 90 minutes of climate change grilling. Very sustained, very detailed, very intense. Yeah. And Westpac had a first strike. Which West I guess wasn't, of, that, wasn't that much of a surprise. The 29% vote against the remuneration report. Yes. Well, I think that was mainly driven by the fact the share prices tanked, as you said on the news last night, by you know 20% in six weeks since their, their last uh, uh, profit release. And Westpac's now the fifth biggest bank. You know, it used to be number two, a clear number two, and talk of becoming number one after they bought St George. And now they've slipped to number five, which the, the chairman, John McFarlane, acknowledged yesterday was embarrassing. And that they are a natural number two, they should be number two, but they just got so many things wrong from 285 million on Bill Pappas to a 1.3 billion dollar Oztrack fine, to you know you name it. And now they're trying to shrink to glory by selling off nine different divisions of the bank, and hence that's how they're going to cut costs from 13 billion to 8 billion, partly because they're shrinking their way to glory. Hence they're down to number five. So uh, very unhappy shareholders across the board at Westpac yesterday. Yeah, well. I'm just trying to think. Who was the last CEO um, uh, before? Uh, Brian Hartzer. Yeah, so there was Brian Hartzer, and uh, I mean, I guess I bet he got a payout when he left. Oh, of course, of course. You know, and all these characters, they get a payout, and they've just ruined the place. Yes, I mean, yes. Uh, no, a, that's that's exactly right. They, um, uh, you know, I mean, hopefully he's still got his shares, Brian. You know, so the shares have gone from what thirty to twenty broadly. Um, so hopefully there's a bit of pain on the on the equity holding front, but uh, uh, yeah, it's uh, such a contrast now. If you think about the the market caps of the big banks, I mean today we've got C- CBA at the top of the pops at 167.5 billion, NAB 93.6, Macquarie is now number three at 78.3 billion, ANZ 77.4, Westpac 77 billion. 
Westpac's about to do a $3.5 billion buyback. So, they're, again, they're shrinking their way to glory. Yes. No, Peter King's got a lot of work to do there. I mean, yeah. No, it's a very um, uh, inglorious story, that is, that's for sure. Mm. Um, but, I, but also I want to say, Stephen, I mean, 70 AGMs asking questions, I think it's incredible what you do. And I tweeted about this the other day, and I just want to say that I think you get nowhere near the appreciation that you deserve. You know, I called you a national treasure, and I think it's true. Well, well, that was very nice of you, Alan, because I, I normally get – I was just reading a few of the Shareholders Association reports on all these AGMs, and I was accused of hijacking one meeting and, you know, a barrage of too many questions. So I was thinking maybe I, I need to limit myself to seven or eight questions a meeting rather than uh, – I think it was 16 at Len Lease. I think I got up into the 20s with Jerry Harvey last year before he worked out it was me asking all the questions. Um, but the thing is, though, Alan, if I don't turn up, you know, like people are complaining that nothing happened at the Premier Investments and the Harvey Norman AGMs this year. It's because I got, I got jammed and I couldn't go and no one asked any questions. So there's a real crisis of, of AGM attendance this year I mean, only 155 shareholders turned up at the Commonwealth Bank online AGM and 25 proxy holders. They've got 900,000 shareholders. So, you know, something's gone wrong here. BHP's got 550,000 shareholders and only 200 turned up to the online AGM. So uh, I, I would love it if there was another 15 people like me getting up and asking questions, but I just go in there and say, look, I'll underwrite the debate. If someone's listening, I'll ask a few questions, and and there's just barely anyone who gets up and asks a question. So, so you, you throw a few in. Often they're boilerplate, like you know, what are the proxy advisors saying? Will you produce a transcript? What about annual elections of directors? You know, I've got these sort of standard questions, and you know, like the, the, on the transcript front, I think about ten companies have agreed to produce a transcript for the first time this year, which is good. So quite a bit of its disclosure, like NAB have agreed to disclose the proxies to the ASX before the meeting starts tomorrow. So that's a good progress because so often they hide big protest votes so you never have a proper debate at the AGM about why there was a big REM protest vote or why 40% of the shareholders opposed the board's recommendation on climate. So if you just get the proxies put up at the start on the ASX, then everyone can ask questions based on you know what was driving the protest vote. So that's a nice little reform we've, we've got up with a couple of companies this year too. Yes, well, look, I just think you provide a great service, Stephen, so well done. And the other thing that's been going on is uh, takeovers. There's tons of them. I mean, it's all happening. Um, uh, was the latest one being CSL's $17 billion or $16.5 billion of the Swiss pharmaceutical company Vifor, um, and they're raising $6.5 billion uh, in uh, capital raising. So what do you think is going on here? Well, what's amazing about the, the CSL uh – um, deal is the stock started resume trading this morning and it's down by $25 or 8.6%. So they've, they've committed to spend $16.4 billion cash out. They've raised $6.3 billion cash in and the market cap has been cut by $11.7 billion this morning uh, from 135 to 123.5. So the market doesn't like it. To start with, they think they've overpriced at the top of the market, which I suggest they have done, which CSL traditionally doesn't do. They like to usually wait for a crisis before they swoop on some big rival, which has been the secret to their success in the past. So 
disappointing they've gone for a placement raising rather than a Patreo pro rata. $6.3 billion is the biggest ever placement, more than double what we've seen before. And then throw in all the other ones from Osnet to um, Sydney Airport. Um, it just seems to be a frenzy of uh, takeovers. We've never seen a year with this many takeovers, and that all comes back, I think, to the easy credit and 0% interest rates that uh, that uh, you can just buy at your rivals because uh, uh, cash is easy and cheap and away you go. So I think we'll keep seeing this increasingly. Yeah. Um, the worry is that people will overpay in a bubble um, and be left with a big debt and a, a lower share price if interest rates do happen to rise. I reckon you can absolutely count on that happening. Uh, they're all, all these companies are trying to get bigger, um, largely because the, the bigger the company, the more the CEO gets paid. Yeah, true. And it's quite an issue, I think, with the, the dearth of um, infrastructure stocks that will be left for retail investors. I mean, Spark's also being taken over. Osnet, $10.2 billion, Sydney Airport. It's only really going to leave Transurban and APA Group um, as publicly listed companies. And I must admit, I've actually done a pitch to Albanese, or one of his staff, I think it is, saying that he should uh, print money and buy Transurban. Because uh, Morrison's printed $200 billion, so I reckon Albanese should come out and say it Look, I'm only going to print 190 during my first term of office, less than the irresponsible Morrison who's printed 200 billion to give to the banks. And I'm going to spend 60 billion buying back Transurban. And I'm going to cut the tolls. And so motorists in Melbourne, Sydney, and Brisbane are going to get relief uh, because Transurban's gouging customers. And I don't believe it's appropriate to have private toll rates. I reckon he'd win the election on that policy alone. What a good idea. That's a fantastic idea. I've just given it away on uh, the Money Cafe, though, now. So uh, if it does happen, we claim we, we first raised it here. I have, I have emailed it to him, though, so hopefully he's thinking about it. Nah, they, this is the absolute last thing they're going to do. Christ, do you imagine, yes. them, imagine anyone doing that? I mean, it'd be great, but it's not going to happen. Yeah, well, they'd be accused of recklessly, you know, nationalising private companies and stuff. But the, they do. Morrison has set a precedent with money printing. I mean, the Australian Office of Financial Management, you look at their homepage. $841 billion is the current amount of debt. And with the MyEFO update today, our projected budget deficit to $342 billion a few weeks when the budget came out. It won't be much less now. So debt is heading to, to $1,100, $1,200 billion. So what Albanese says about debt, I think uh, people are not going to be too worried because you can just print your way out of trouble. Well, yes. And as I've pointed out a couple of times in New Daily, the, the amount of um – uh, the amount of money that the RBA has printed, it basically equal, uh, equals the amount of extra debt that the government has issued yes. during, the, during the pandemic. Um, but the thing is that it's not the government that's done it, it's the RBA that's done it, yes. that's issued it, and has done it independently for reasons other than financing the government. Well, that's true. As you say, they laundered through the big four banks, through the big banks which they, um, you know, RBA's lent. The banks, what is it, 180 billion as well, and then the the banks have bought the, uh, the the government's bonds using some of that cash. So it's a it's a beautiful little circuit they've got running there, and um, uh, I think they're going to need to turn it off at some point. But uh, as long as uh, the currency doesn't crash and there's no breakout in inflation, then um, you may as well just keep printing. And I'm still waiting for a central bank anywhere to write off the debt to actually admit that this yep. will never be repaid. Yes, right. I think that's that's the lack of honesty at the moment is actually rather than just allowing it to accumulate, actually coming out and saying, yeah, we're going to write this off because it was printed in the first place, so we're going to unprint it now. Yeah, but they haven't got enough capital. So if they're, they're right enough, they're, they're just 
blow up their capital. Yeah. So they, they'll have, it'll just they'll it'll just sit on their balance sheets. I yeah, think. forever, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. We need to move on to questions because I've got to go and get a COVID test. So, and I think you've got to go and do something too. Correct. But, um, uh, so, first question is from Luke from Dongara. I don't, I'm hoping you know this. Could you please explain how to calculate the purchase price of shares issued under a dividend reinvestment plan? Is it as clunky as I'm guessing with multiple different quantities purchased at different multiple prices? Um, well, I, I don't know, to be honest. Look, it is a bit clunky, but at least it's only two times a year in Australia, unlike uh, the US, where they often pay a quarterly dividend. So, I mean, Macquarie, 8% of Macquarie shareholders, about 16,000 are on the automatic DRP. So they've just been issued with $81 million worth of of, um, of shares in lieu of cash dividends. The deemed price, I think, was $204. And so if you're a Macquarie shareholder on the DRP, you should just make a note that uh, you acquired another 40 shares at, at $204. And uh, if you do it over long term, I agree, it's complicated in terms of working out your uh, your actual accurate uh, purchase price when you come to sell them. But just just come up with as best an estimate as you can and I don't think the ATA is going to chase you if you're a few cents out on your, on your estimation. But I think that's why a lot of people don't do the DRP because of the complication around tax time. Mm. You want to ask the next one? I've got one, Catherine. Uh, hi, Alan. I feel like I'm your only female listener. Every question seems to be from Dan or Dave or some other name. Here's my question. I've heard you say that for small-time investors, if, you're, if your own investments and shares can't beat the return your super fund gets, stop mucking around and put it in your super. I'm worried that I'm putting all my eggs in one basket and that that basket might make a terrible decision and lose all my eggs. Is it really wise to just stick to paying off the house I live in and pour the rest into my super account? Well... well. Well, the answer is as long as it's a good performing super fund and it's probably balanced rather than cash or growth, then you probably can put it away and, and, and forget about it. Unlike what I did when I left 40,000 of News Corp employee super with um, AMP in, in all cash high fees and massively underperformed 15 years before I worked out what was going on. So, yeah. Pick a good performing fund and unless you love spending time stock picking and you prove yourself to be a great stock picker, I think that that advice is probably pretty good. And as you as you say, it depends on the super fund. I mean, most there aren't many super funds that are going to blow up really. No. Um, you'd, have to, you'd have to really go sort of at the long tail of dodgy super funds um, to find one. Yeah, just make sure up. you don't get gouged with excessive fees. I think look for well, the fees, quite- look for the net returns, the history and, and go for it. Stick with a large industry industry fund, uh, you'll be right. I would agree with that. Um, question from Dave, um, which I think is more for you, Stephen. Should um, uh, should they go for the Westpac um, uh, capital raising? The Westpac buyback. Well, look, the, it's a sorry, very interesting the situation. I, what did you do? It's. Uh, I just lodged a question with the ANZ about this as well. So, Commonwealth Bank. Uh, did a $6 billion buyback and got $30 billion worth of applications. And that was because the franking component, the fully franked component was 24.4% and the rest was, uh, sorry, was was uh, 75.6% and the rest was capital. What Westpac has done is they've, they've come out and said that we're going to do a $3.5 billion buyback 
and the capital component will be $11.34 and the rest, rest will be franking. Now, because the share price has crashed, you know, now down to sort of below $21, the fully franked component of the buyback is going to be less than half and the rest is going to be capital, which is not as tax preferred. So that's why they came out last week and said we're actually going to change the terms of our buyback so it's not between an 8 and 14% discount, which is what the standard formula is. We're now going to accept bids at between 0 and 10% discount. And they admitted at the AGM yesterday that they'd had very few applications. They've said that shareholders can withdraw their applications if they're not happy, and they've delayed the buyback offer from December 17 to February 11. I still think if you're a low-tax shareholder, then putting in a tender at a modest discount, you know, maybe 3 4 5% does work well because sort of probably 45% of what comes back is going to be fully franked dividend, and then you can access those franking credits. So it still does work just that Westpac's a bit embarrassed that they weren't deluged like the Commonwealth Bank. They had less franking credits to give, so they've had to recut the terms because they're performing so badly as their share price crashes that the uh, the capital component of the buyback was becoming an increasing proportion of the overall deal with each uh, drop in the share price. Okay, you can read the next one. Hi, Alan and Stephen. I love it when you two get back together in the cafe virtual uh, November 2, November 2, uh, 2021, Arch TIS, small cap, small cap Australian cybersecurity company, made its shares available for quotation on the OTCQB, a US trading platform that is operated by the OTC Markets Group. Arch TIS's share price has subsequently dropped by 40%, even though they're kicking some seriously good goals operationally with key government contracts in collaboration with Microsoft and other multinationals. Do you know of any small cap Australian companies that have traded on the OTCBQB successfully? And do you think Australian small cap companies with low market turnover are overexposed to shorting when they go onto these US trading platforms? Um, well, and I doubt it's a shorting issue. It's definitely, um, it's definitely not a shorting issue. No, definitely not shorting. I think Arch Tiss's share price ran up from $0.06 cents to $0.49 cents with the whole COVID euphoria. They sort of went with a... They went with a Kogan-style, you know, pop in the share price, and they've recently raised capital at six point five million, a placement at uh, six point five million at twenty-three cents. So I think investors are just realising that global cybersecurity is a pretty—it's a big market, but there's lots of big players in it. These guys are still needing capital. They're small. They're Canberra-based. Not not that easy dealing with government sometimes. War for talent in IT getting expensive. So. I don't know. There are a few thoughts as to why the share price might have come off a bit. Oh, definitely. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. It's it just got up too high. Everyone got too excited. Yeah. And and it's still losing money. The September quarter they they they're burning <clears throat> they're burning a million dollars a month. Yeah, that's right. It's it's a straight cash cash burn question. So uh, yeah, and there haven't been too many successful Canberra based uh, I mean, ASX listed companies. I, I wish them well, but um, it doesn't necessarily a, it doesn't necessarily mean that you know they're 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 no good. Yeah, their market cap's still 50 mil. It's just that uh, it's no longer 120, which it was uh, at the top of the boom uh, middle of last year. So, uh, well, our next question I've got, uh, Ian, Steve. I'll do it. None of us here are lawyers, but does it surprise you that there hasn't been a shareholder class action brought against Crown? Given their shenanigans, I would have thought one was inevitable. Well, the answer, uh, Ian, is that there's actually two class actions that were brought against Crown by Morris Blackburn, and one of them just settled a few weeks ago for $125 million, uh, related to the uh, poor disclosure around the China arrests. 
So um, Crown is currently negotiating with their insurers as to how much of the 125 million shareholders will pay rather than the insurers will pay. Um, I actually wouldn't be surprised if Magellan copped the class action as well. Um, often you mm. see that when you get crashing share prices and sometimes you get arguments about whether the, a company releases all the relevant information uh, in time. But, uh, yeah, Crown, definitely the systems work well. They've got regulators crawling all over them and the class action lawyers have given them a whack too and a $100 million plus settlement puts it in the top ten for class action settlements against the public companies. So... Justice has been served and they deserve it, given their shenanigans, I would argue. Yes, indeed. And you can read the last question. So Jenny's saying, Alan, could you please give me your thoughts on ACDC? So alternating current and direct current, I don't know. I, I, I don't really know which of those I prefer, to be honest. <laughs> Back um, in Black's my favourite ACDC song. I'm not much of an ACDC fan, I've got to say. I mean, I, look, I think they're... Uh, uh, they're wonderful Australian institution, um, but um, you know what I reckon. When, when Peter Dutton couldn't say his favourite ACDC song when interviewed on Triple M by Eddie Maguire and Co. When he was doing his coup, that was the moment I thought he's got no chance. <laughs> you got to have your favourite ACDC song. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, well, and uh, and I guess finally uh, we've got. Uh, you know, we normally meet in Hawthorne in 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 Josh Frydenberg's seat of Kuyong and. Uh, I reckon Josh has got a bit of his, you know, his work cut out with this Monique Ryan uh, uh, yeah. independent running against him. Well, we've both met her, and she's uh, she's she's a pretty solid, pretty solid individual. Crikey. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I certainly was impressed when I uh, I had a brief chat with her. So uh, anyway, it's, I think it's quite healthy to see uh, all these highly talented women taking on uh, uh, politics across the country with uh, this sort of independent movement. So, oh, um, yeah, I've got a feeling we might finish up with uh, a balance of power, cross-bench, majority female, that led by Helen Haynes, Ali Stegall, and maybe with a, a Zoe Daniel and a Monique Ryan thrown in for good measure. It'd be interesting to see. And I think it'll be really healthy, to be honest. I think this, the, the idea that this would be chaotic or that they're, they're a front for Labor and the Greens is rubbish. Yeah, it is rubbish, and I'm just—I think people are sick of the big parties and all the branch stacking, factional games, pork barreling. It's just people have had a gutful, and yeah. um, you know, I think just—I uh, think some fresh, less party-constrained talent in the parliament uh, would be a great thing. So, uh, we'll, anyway, we'll see how that plays out. And Stephen, have a good Christmas. You too, Alan. It's been lovely to chat, and um, look forward to participating cafes and columns into 2022. Yes, indeed, and uh, thanks to everyone for listening to us in 2021. Uh, it's been a lot of fun, uh, not always in the cafe, but we had uh, up until today got back into the cafe and we'll be back in the cafe next year. Look forward to um, uh, bringing you Money Cafe in 2022 and uh, to everyone listening, have a great Christmas. Have a great Christmas. Thanks, Alan. Have a great day. Thank you.